Once again, I ask that you take your Bibles and turn with me, please, to the first chapter of the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 1. I had originally thought that we were going to get down to the end of the chapter, and yet as I began to study the whole issue of gender and uh, what the Bible says about that, and it's a raging issue in our day, uh, we are going to be focusing upon that instead of, so instead of reading all the way down through verse 31, I would just simply want to read verses 26 through verse 28. Then God said, let the earth bring forth the living creature according to its kind. Excuse me, I was reading verse 24. Verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Once again, let's pray for the help of God. Holy Father, we thank you and bless you for the perfection of your work. We bless you that before sin came into the world, everything you made was perfectly good. And we bless you that before sin defiled the hearts of the first pair, Adam and Eve, they too were perfectly upright. and They too reflected in a perfect way your image. And we bless you for the way in which you made them, male and female. We pray, Lord, that you'd help us to understand your purpose in this, this morning. Have mercy upon us, we do pray. Draw near to us by the power and the grace of the Holy Spirit. Pray this in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. For thousands of years, the human race has operated by the unspoken principle that if you made it, you own it. And if you own it, you get to decide how to use it. If you make a little table with short legs, it's your table. You can use that table any way you particularly choose to use it. And you can use it, maybe, this table with short legs, as a coffee table. Or maybe you can put a cushion on it and you can set it next to the wall. It can be a bench. But perhaps you set it under a window and put plants on it and it's your little greenhouse. You get to choose how you use that table that you made. More and more, however, the government tries to control even what we have made, even what is ours. And some of the regulations of the government are very understandable. Certain building codes have been enacted, for instance, in order to protect property values in a given zone or to protect fire against fire hazards. And there are other regulations that relate to making sure that when you sell your house, the new owner won't discover that the whole thing is falling apart because of hidden uh, problems that are in the workmanship of that house. 
And so there's, it's understandable how some of those regulations would come to pass. But then there are other regulations that are very controversial. This past July, for instance, a restaurant owner in northern Illinois, he was fined for flying the United States flag in front of his establishment, his restaurant. And so the restaurant owner, he fought back. And refusing to pay the fines, he took the first two tickets for $200, and he taped them to the front door of his restaurant. And others were all angry about it as well in the community. And so they too joined in the fight. So a large crowd of flag-waving people showed up with their trucks, blaring their horns, shouting over loudspeakers, and holding up signs, support the American flag. The owner, he's also vowed to fight it in court, even though it cost him way more than what the tickets were that he was given. And so there are regulations that are understandable, but others that are not. But in an unrestricted manner, God claims the right to do what he pleases with what he has made. If he made it, he gets to decide how it's to be used. And this pertains to people as well as things. And so to those that protest God's right to choose some people and to reject other people, in Romans 9, Paul says, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? So God made it. He's like the potter that fashions the clay into a vase or whatever he decides. And God has sovereign rights over what he has made. In Jesus' parable of the workers in the vineyard, the landowner paid each worker the same, no matter how long, what time of the day he showed up to work. And when some of the workers complained about this at the end of the day, the landowner said this, Is it not fair? Or they're saying it's not fair. And he says, is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? In other words, it's fine. I get to do what I want to. If I want to be generous to some and less generous to others, that's up to me. Now in Genesis chapter 1, we have an account of the sovereign of the universe making all things. And one of the primary implications of this account is that because God made all things as the maker and sovereign of all, he gets to rule over all things. He gets to dictate to what he has made and how it's going to be used. As the Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper once said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. God calls it mine, and therefore he determines how it's, it's to be used. He gets to rule. And this principle is especially prominent in the verses that we just read. God made mankind in his own image, male and female. He created them. And this manifests his sovereign determination regarding these two genders, male and female. God instituted marriage between a man and a woman. And this teaches us God's intention for marriage. He told the first pair to be fruitful and to multiply. This implies also God's purpose for childbearing and for population growth. He even gave directives about what they were to eat. God made it all. He gets to therefore 
make the rules up about what he made. But ever since God did this, mankind has rebelled against God's rule. Mankind has rebelled against everything that God has determined here in Genesis chapter 1. And this rebellion is summed up by the words of the rebels in Christ's parable of the Minas. They said, we will not have this man to reign over us. And ever since the fall, mankind has been saying this to God. We won't have you rule over us. We get to decide what gender we are, not you. If I want to become a girl, I can become a girl. I get to make that decision, not you. We get to decide whether men can marry men, whether women can marry women. Not you, God. That's our, that's, that's our place to make this up. We get to make the decisions about population control, not you. We get to decide the roles of men and women, not you. That's been man's attitude toward the way things were set up by our God. And sad to say, even professing Christians have buckled under the pressure of our rebellious generation. In 1997, the editors of the New International Version, they came out with a New International Inclusive Language Edition. And it changed hundreds of male gender pronouns to the to gender neutral pronouns. And often when they did this, it, it changed the meaning of the text in significant ways. For instance, in Psalm 1, Psalm 1 reads in the, the good versions, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the he does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, etc. And this is changed to blessed are those who do not walk. And this turns the focus away from a singular man bucking, as it were, the whole crowd that's against him and boldly not walking the way the whole mob is going. And it changes it into just, just a more bland, uh, neutral thing about those that don't do this. And right here in Genesis chapter 1, God created man in his own image this is replaced in this version by God-created human beings. And this obscures the unity of mankind, that there is one man that he made, and we're all, we all came from that one man made in the image of God. The phrase in the Psalms, he protects all his bones. This is replaced by he protects all their bones. And thereby this obscures the reference to Christ as being the one that would fulfill that prophecy. This was a horrendous attempt, you see, to transform the Bible into a woke book that everybody can read and say, well, this is, this is up to date now. In our last sermon, we entitled that sermon, Our Royal Ancestors. And we took up the first point in the outlines that are in your bulletins. We looked particularly with respect to our royal ancestors, Adam and Eve, at their dominion. And this is stressed in verses 26 and 28. It's only because mankind was created in the image of God, it's only because of this that it was appropriate to give him this awesome position and, uh, and responsibility of having dominion over all the rest of creation. In verse 26, we read of the divine intertrinitarian deliberation about this dominion. Then God said, let us, it's the persons of the God in talking to one another, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And with respect to this dominion, we noted its extent. It extends to the whole rest of creation, but it had a limitation. 
It wasn't over other human beings. We don't get to, to buy and sell people like pieces of property. The dominion of, of, of the man and the woman was over the rest of creation, not over other people. And then we noted its beneficence. And the word beneficence, it refers to something that's beneficial to others. It's something that confers a benefit. It's doing good for others. And to clarify what we were talking about with reference to the beneficence of the dominion mandate, we noted its opposites, what it's not. It's not reckless abuse, this issue of having dominion over creation. It's not survival of the fittest. It's not the imbalances that are so often prevalent among mankind, either the crass industrialism of some people that destroy everything because they want to make money, or the, or the idolatry of certain extreme environmentalists. And so there is this beneficence, but it is, it is governed by biblical principles. This is the dominion that God gave the first pair, Adam and Eve. But now this morning, I want you to come with me to the consideration of the second point that is in your outlines, and we're only going to cover this next point. We want to look at their genders. He made them male and female. And this is what we read in verse 27. Let's read that verse again. So God created man in his own image. The image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now before we comment on these words, male and female, for the sake of clarity, we, we need to note that the word man, in verse 26, let us make man in our own image, this doesn't refer to the male gender alone. It refers to mankind, male and female both. And political correctness these days, it makes people refrain from the use of the word man, in, as in, even in a general way, to refer to humanity. But the Hebrew word that's translated man, in verse 26, is used precisely in the way that we traditionally have used the word man to refer to mankind. And the primary meaning for the word Adam or man is a human being or the human race. And this doesn't differentiate between the sexes. And such language, it has nothing to do with being sexist. And it doesn't refer in any way to an unloving, self-serving male domination. That's not what it's referring to. Nothing in these verses encourages male superiority or female inferiority. But the word man in these verses, it refers, you see, to all of humanity, both male and female. But then when we, come, when we move on from the word God created man in his own image, when we come to the words male and female in verse 27, this clearly does refer to different genders, a male gender and a female gender. And right on the surface of our text, therefore, is the fact that God created each one of us as one of two genders, either male or female. And these two genders are clearly identifiable by easily recognizable biological differences between males and females. And no matter what operation somebody can go through to change their gender, their chromosomes are the same. They're still the same gender that's recorded on their birth certificate. That doesn't change. No matter how they want to dress, no matter what they want to call themselves, they're still that gender. Their chromosomes, their DNA, throughout the whole body, uh, dictates what gender they are. But in recent years, 
The transgender craze has rushed down upon society like an avalanche. The 2013 Netflix series, Orange is the New Black, it made a star out of Laverne Cox, the first openly transgender person to appear as a regular actor in a television series. And so when it it becomes a sitcom, then then it's beginning to get accepted by by everybody. Uh, The transition of Bruce Jenner to Caitlyn Jenner, this was overwhelmingly lauded by the media. And in fact, if you go to Wikipedia, you can't find an entry anymore to Bruce Jenner. uh, Bruce Jenner. You can't find it anymore. It's Caitlyn Jenner. Now let me say that as Christians, we must exercise compassion in the way that we deal with people that struggle with legitimate psychological problems. And one particular problem I'm referring to is what uh, psychologists call gender dysphoria. And let's remember that the fall has affected us in many different ways. It's affected us physically. We get sick. It's affected us. Our minds are part of our, our, physical, our physical being. And there are psychological abnormalities that therefore come out because of the fall. And in a small fraction of the population, less than 1%, the brain somehow disagrees with the body about whether a person is a male or female. There's a little mi- a confusion in one's thoughts, you see, especially as a young person. And at least in some cases, this disorder can be successfully treated and dealt with. But with respect to what's called early onset gender dysphoria, this is a reference to a little child, usually two to four years old. And this little child doesn't know whether he's a boy or girl doesn't know whether to play, play with tractors or dolls. Just it doesn't know, you know why, why do I put a dress on? Why do I put pants on? This little child, you see, is confused. and This is what's called early onset gender dysphoria. In almost every such case, they grow out of it. But there is what's also called rapid onset gender dysphoria. And this is increasingly common as a social phenomenon affecting teenagers and sometimes even adults. And the social media influencers that celebrate their newfound gender identity, they put it online, they put it on Facebook, and they write about it, and everybody says, oh, what a wonderful thing you did, and and my heart's with you, and all the rest. They glorify this, and it's passed on around as if it's perfectly normal. And it, it only leads greatly, you see, to confusion on this matter. And the rate of self-identification with the opposite gender this has mushroomed in recent years among school children, affecting as many as 25% in California kids, according to one very extensive survey. And given that teenagers, they naturally don't know who they are. They're trying to figure out, well, who am I? And what, what, what about me? And they're, they're very self-absorbed. And they, they wonder about uh, their acceptance with their peers. And they're trying to figure this out. And this is an extremely dangerous time in their life. And so at an alarming rate, puberty blockers, hormone therapy, even transition surgery is given to young people that are not ready to make such major decisions in their lives. And even parents are excluded from the decision. At an alarming rate, these things are being used and prescribed for those that are too young to make such life-altering decisions. And in many cases, it's led to permanent sterility and many other regrettable results. I want to say before we move on, if you or a friend of yours 
has a child that's struggling with this. Genesis 1 is a good place to start with that child. Go to Genesis chapter 1. In spite of what our society is telling us, what do we read here? God created two, and only two, genders. He didn't create cisgender, whatever that is. He created male and female. That's what he created. And before sin entered into the world and all kinds of physical and mental ailments began to affect mankind, there wasn't any such thing as what's now called gender fluidity. People kind of flowing in and out of, out of their genders. God made human beings, this is plain as, as, as can be, on the face of our text, he made them male and female. That was it. And even while they're young, therefore, it's good to teach our children how God made every child a boy or a girl. Explain that to your children. Explain the differences of how, what, what boys are like and what girls are like. And teach them the differences, you see. Show them that it's best to learn from God how a boy is to behave and what will make a boy happy and what, he, and what God has in mind for boys or what God has in mind for girls, if it's a girl you're talking about. And, and tell your child that it's God that made them. If they don't decide who they are. It's God that decided whether they're a boy or a girl. You tell your confused friend, perhaps, and, and, and you tell perhaps that the child, when you're talking online with one of you, this is one of the big difficulties about these phones. Sometimes we wish we could just throw them in the ocean. They're, they're all you gabbing with one another, oh, I think I'm a boy now, or I think I'm a girl now. And they, and they begin to talk back and forth, and they begin to sympathize, and they get all emotional about it. And this talk about changing into a boy or changing into a girl and your child should take his gender identity not from what everybody's saying online, not from what everybody is posting on Facebook, not from what everybody is saying at school, but God needs to be the one that tells them who they are. They are either a boy or a girl as God made them. And likewise, neither we nor our children should base our ideas concerning gender on feelings. This is a feeling-oriented generation. Focus on the Families, Andrew Sims has written a very helpful and practical article on, and it's posted online about this issue of going by feelings. And with respect to the whole matter of being dominated by feelings, he, he writes this. So much of the reasoning behind the LGBT movement is based on people's feelings and experiences. Their legitimate pain calls out for compassion and support touching our hearts, as it should. But when we elevate people's stories, feelings, preferences, and experiences above scriptural truth, we have built a house of cards instead of found foundation for life. And those who create their own principles of sexuality are not models to follow. Only God's perfectly designed plan, as communicated in his word, should be the standard after which we aim. Well-meaning Christian parents, they may fall into the trap of thinking that it's loving to acquiesce to their child's gender struggle without considering the more important responsibility of shepherding their eternal souls. You see what it's saying here? 
It may seem like, oh, you let them do what they want to do. They act out what they feel like and act out what they think like. And that may seem very sympathetic. It may seem very understanding and very loving. And that's the best thing you need to do them. No, my friend, you need to shepherd them by God's word and what God's word says about who they are and what God's purpose is for them. And so Sims goes on to say, but putting your acceptance of your children's preferences and behavior above their relationship with God doesn't truly help them. Encouraging your child to honor God and lean on him as their gracious helper is the most loving thing that you can do as their earthly parent. So our text makes it abundantly plain what God's creation of mankind is, was composed of. Composed of two genders, male and female. But our text has more to say than just the simple fact that God made two, two genders. And with respect to these two genders, there are two features that are implied in the statement of verse 26, let us make man in our image, and the statement of verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And the, two, the first implication is this. There's an implication of shared dignity, both male and female. Now there's something very different about this account from the account of the creation of the animals. Unlike the animals, man is not broken down into various kinds. And with reference to all the different creatures, it, they, they were created after their kind or according to their kind. That phrase is used again and again in verses 24 and 25 and other verses in this passage. This phrase, according to its kind, that is, elephants beget elephants, they, they have their kind, you see, that, that mate together and so forth. And so there is a distinction between kinds, but we don't read, you see, God made man after their kinds. That's not what it says about the creation of man as if they're different kinds, as if they're different species of mankind. Instead of being differentiated by these various kinds, mankind is differentiated by two genders, male and female. Now in ancient non-biblical literature, the idea that man was first created bisexual and only later on was distinguished according to separate genders, this is put forth in some ancient texts. But this is not found in the book of Genesis. Instead, our text makes it crystal clear that right from the start, mankind was differentiated by gender, male and female. And this is exceedingly significant. Right from the start, both sexes bore the same divine image equally. Both sexes were also given the command to subdue the earth and exercise dominion over the rest of creation. And this is the foundational basis for the proper treatment of women and girls. It explains the high view of women in Christian culture and the low view that exists in so many other cultures. The famous 19th century anti-slavery activist Harriet Beecher Stowe the author of the famous book, Uncle Tom's Cabin. She also wrote a, another book that most people are not aware of, 
a book entitled Women in Sacred History. And in this book, she explained the object of the following pages will be to show in a series of biographical sketches a history of womanhood under divine culture, tending toward the development of that high ideal of woman which we find in modern Christian countries. And by way of contrast, in many cultures that are not dominated by Christian teaching, the Judeo-Christian worldview, when this worldview is suppressed, women tend to become second-class citizens. One of the great concerns that many of us have about pulling all of our troops out of Afghanistan was the rapid expansion of the Taliban control over most of the country. And this has already begun to take place as we've begun to pull out altogether. An incident from 2001, when the Taliban were in power before 9-11 hit and the war there began, an incident took place that illustrates the kind of things that are likely to take place all over again in that country. The day was much like any other. For the young Afghan mother, the only difference was that her child was feverish and had been, for, had been for some time and needed to see a doctor. But simple tasks in Taliban-controlled Afghanistan today are not that easy. The mother was alone. The doctor was across town. She had no male relative to escort her. And to ask another man to do this would be to risk severe punishment. To go on her own meant that she would risk flogging. And because she loved her child, though, she had no choice. And donning the tent-like burqa as Taliban law required, she set out, cradling her child in her arms. She shouldn't have. As they appeared, approached the market, she was spotted by a teenage Taliban guard who tried to stop her. And intent on saving her child, the mother ignored him, hoping that he would ignore her. He didn't. Instead, he raised his weapon and shot repeatedly. Both mother and child fell to the ground. They survived because bystanders in the market intervened to save them. The young Taliban guard was unrepentant, fully supported by the regime. The woman should not have been out alone. She deserves to die. That's the way she's to be treated. She can't take her child to a doctor. And when in power, the Taliban has waged unrelenting war against women. Women were imprisoned in their own homes. They were denied basic health care. 13 out of 100 die in childbirth. They were denied basic education. The women's universities were closed down. Girls over the age of eight were prohibited from attending any kind of school, even homeschool. All females as young as eight years old had to wear a burqa. This effectively was a psychological and physical torture imposed upon them. And without any meaningful legal recourse, they were subjected to widespread abduction, forced marriages, and rapes. You see what happens in a society that's not governed by this biblical principle of God making man in his own image, male and female. The females are in God's image. They're, they have the same dignity as, as the males. In Hindu, Hindu society, women are also treated as second-class people. 
And so in India, the practice of killing baby girls, both before and after birth, is, is a common practice. But the biblical concept of woman being created in the image of God, this has transformed the way women are treated. And in spite of this, many critics of Christianity, they accuse the Bible of being anti-woman. But the truth is the exact opposite. The Bible is filled with stories of heroic and godly women. And while the Bible has assigned different roles for men and women in the home and in the church as persons created in God's image, they're regarded as equal in intelligence, equal in value in the eyes of God, and also in the eyes of all who love God. God honors women. Women were the the last at the cross, and women were the first at the tomb of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And this shows how they are valued, how they are esteemed as being having the dignity that God has, has given unto them, having created them in his own image. And this is a reminder to all of us as husbands and fathers. It's a reminder to us as male church members that we are to treat women with the utmost dignity. That's why we open the doors for women. That's why we do special things for them, to honor them. I remember one intelligent Christian woman expressing her frustration over the way in which, as she and her husband and other couples would get together at the table, and the, the men would start talking theology. And then after about 10 or 15 minutes, the only thing they would think to ever say to a woman was, would you please pass the popcorn? That's all she's supposed to do is pass the popcorn. As if she's not, she's not to talk theology or, or discuss that. And of course, there's differences among men and women, both men and women, about how much they, they, they talk theology, you see. Not all women have the same interests, but there's no reason why, you see, those that are so inclined shouldn't read theology. Just this past week, I spoke with a pastor about a couple that's been saved for about 10 years, and one of the things that this man and this woman love to do is, as young Christians, they love to read theology together. Wow. And of course, that doesn't mean that all couples love to read theology together, all men or all women. There are different ways in which women express their ingenuity and talent. But whatever the case, our women are to be given the utmost honor in the church and in the home. So the first implication of men and women being created in the image of God is their shared dignity. But now the second implication of what Genesis 1 says about the creation of man in the image of God, both male and female, the second implication is the implication of complementary union. And here, of course, I'm not using a word that sounds the same but has an I in the middle. There's a difference between paying a compliment, in other words, saying something praiseworthy about a person. You know, I like your, your dress today, or I like the, the haircut you just got. You pay a compliment, and that word has an I in the middle of the word. This has an E on the, in the middle of the word, compliment. And when I'm using this word complimentary, I'm referring to the way in which two people complement one another. They, they fit together. And together they are better than being separate. They complete each other. That's what I have in mind when I say complementary union. And here in the first chapter of the Bible, we have the first hint 
of God's intention for marriage. And the intention, namely, is the union of two different people that complete one another. And we're going to get to chapter 2, and much more is said about this in Genesis chapter 2. But notice here the contrast with the creation of the other living creatures. In verse 20, God says, Let the waters abound with an abundance of living creatures. In other words, he's speaking about the creation of the sea, sea life. And literally, it says, let, let the, the waters swarm with swarms. It's speaking of billions of fish being created in an instant by God's word, by his power. And this pattern is repeated with the creation of the flying creatures. God didn't just create one pair of sparrows. He created millions of them. God didn't just create two elephants. He created many of them, you see. And he, he, he doesn't just create the, the one original pair of elephants. And with all of these creatures, there's not the creation of a single original pair, but of multitudes. This is without exception. But God chose to do something very different with mankind. He made just one pair, a man and a woman. In verse 24, chapter 2 and verse 24, we read, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And interestingly, in Matthew chapter 19, when Jesus gives instruction about marriage and divorce, he quotes, first of all, from Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27, our text. The text that speaks about God creating man, male and female. He quotes that. And then without saying, well, now in the next chapter, the next part of the book of Genesis, no, he just goes right into the second quote, and the second quote is from chapter 2 and verse 24. It's about their becoming one flesh. He treats both of these texts as speaking of the same thing. The same man, the same woman. So Jesus saw in Genesis 1.27 a hint of the ordinance of marriage. Now in Genesis 2, the idea of a complementary union, it's expounded much more clearly. We're going to get to it later on. The idea is that man was incomplete. Adam, he, he's naming all the animals. He can't find anything that really satisfies him and he can communicate with in the same way. But here we have, even in Genesis 1, a hint of God's divine intentions with respect to the man and the woman. And the union that's in view is a union of two persons who are the same in one sense. They bear God's image. In that way, they're the same. But they're different in another sense. They're male and female. You see that? There's the sameness, yet the difference. Sameness, God's image. Difference, male and female. And in the first chapter of the Bible, therefore, we already see that God's intention for marriage is not the union of two men. It's not the union of two women. God's intention is a union of one man and one woman. That's the way he made it right from the beginning. Recently, my heart sank as I read an article about the way two Christian universities have caved on this issue and one of them even an institution with reformed heritage I was tempted to tell you how this has been all caved in but I won't, I won't go into those details, it's too depressing but may it never be dear people that this church caves on this issue may it never be that we stop standing for what the Bible teaches about this matter 
And to do this is to wield a blow, you see, against the very foundations of the institution of marriage. It's a foundational issue. It's to wield a blow against the foundation uh, that God set forth in the very foundation chapters of the Bible. Now, the picture of this complementary union that's set forth in Genesis 1 and the way in which the union of a man and a woman in some way is connected with their image-bearing capacity. God made them as image, in the image of God, and then it says immediately, male, made them male and female. These things are connected together. It's important that we notice that. In the union of the man and the woman in holy matrimony, there is both unity and diversity. They're one, yet they're different. And as such, they are the only creatures whose very being reflects something of the personal differences in the Trinity and yet the personal and yet the essence being the same. The persons of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit that reflects their interpersonal relationship. And yet at the same time a unity. They are, they are one God. And they're not three gods. There is one triune Godhead. And within the triune Godhead, there's a rich interpersonal relationship that exists within that, that, that Godhead. In a marvelous and mysterious way then, the sacred union of a man and a woman, different but one, in a marvelous way, it, it reflects the richness that exists in the triune God, different but one. Now, intermarriages is the intrusion of sin that short-circuits the enjoyment of the richness of this diversity and unity. The two genders, they tend to have two different imbalances. Men are lacking without women. Women are lacking without men. There's a need for one another. And especially these needs are met in marriage. And the fact that there are these imbalances apart from God's grace and apart from of the ordinance of marriage being used by God to, as it were, rub off those rough things from each. This was common knowledge as recently as 1992 with the publication of John Gray's book, Men Are From Mars and Women Are From Venus. You couldn't publish that book anymore. You can't say there's any difference between men and women anymore. You can't say that. Back then it was okay to say it. So he, it's right on the t title, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. There was one comedian, though, that riffed on how women are the only people that are able to turn a compliment into an argument. He says, you look beautiful today. You mean I didn't look beautiful yesterday? Uh, and she gets troubled over that, you see. And then it's, it's, it works the other way around, too, with men, you see. In old Prairie Home Companion sketch, it captures the way men are incomplete. A couple's driving down the road. Finally, she breaks the silence. She puts out a romantic feeler. Well, what do you know? Today marks the sixth month since our first date. Of course, she's wanting some romantic talk that comes out of that observation. With his gaze that's fixed over the steering wheel, her male companion thinks to himself, six months. When did I get my last oil change? That's what his mind is. He thinks about six months meaning that. And so 
There are these two different perspectives, you see, that need one another. And these vignettes, you see, they illustrate the way in which we bring to our marital relationships deficiencies that need to be met. And, and why, as a man and as a woman, we need one another. And at the same time, these incidents, they highlight the fact that even after we've been joined together in holy matrimony, we fall so far short of the richness of the diversity and unity that's found perfectly in the triune God. Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, they invite us to enjoy the richness that God has to offer, a richness of interpersonal relationship that's to be reflected in marriage. And how do we achieve this richness? Do we get this richness by hounding one another about our deficiencies? This tends to just aggravate and provoke. Instead, dear people, we need to receive what God has to say to us in our spouse and what God has revealed to us in giving us this spouse, what he's revealed about his goodness. And so I would just ask you to pause as you're frustrated with all the little things about your spouse or your boyfriend or girlfriend, whatever, your, your fiancé, you're, 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 you're stressed out sometimes about the way in which they're not quite perfect. But just pause for a moment to think about how God blessed you. You see, all too often we spend our time thinking about deficiencies. You remember that little chorus, and maybe some of you didn't learn this as you were growing up, but the little chorus counts your many blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. And we could do this with reference to our, our husband or our, our wife. Count your marital blessings. Name them one by one. It'll surprise you what the Lord's done and what the Lord has given you. And then spend time with your loved one. Express your gratitude for what he is, for what she is to you. Think of the way that he or she makes you complete. How you would be deficient without him or without her. Think, too, of the ways that he or she... Uh, as it were, needs your contribution to the union and determine you're going to fulfill the needs of the one that you love. But there's something that we need to learn beyond this, beyond how we complete each other and how we are a blessing to one another. You and I ought to come to the fountain of all goodness, even God himself, and ask this God for the grace by which we can experience in greater measure the unity and diversity that's found only perfectly in him. And we need to remember that as wonderful as the unity and diversity is among a husband and a wife, a wonderful unity and diversity in a healthy marriage, it must never be looked upon as our primary relationship. You can't put your marriage first and then God second. That's not the order. Our primary relationship, let's ever remember, is not with our spouse, but with God. And nothing will enhance the enjoyment of your wife, the enjoyment of your husband. Nothing will enhance your union together. You're complementing one another in terms of making each other complete. Nothing will, will do more for that relationship than having a right relationship with God. And this is why reading the word together and praying together is so crucial. Therefore, as you come hand in hand in all of your brokenness and all of your need, come to the fountain of all goodness. Come to the one who in himself for all eternity was one and yet diverse. 
The one who now wants you to pattern your, your life after that example. And come knowing that you can't do it on your own. Come hand in hand in your brokenness to God. And know that in your relationship with him is fullness of joy. And this is why David prayed in Psalm 16, in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Maybe I'm speaking to somebody here. Your marriage is not what you want it to be. It's far short of the, what I've talked about here from this passage. You're, you regret what it is. You're filled with regret, especially over ways in which you and your spouse did not or do not experience this complementary union. In the past, you've been ready to blame this on the shortcomings of your spouse. If he would only do this, or if only she would stop this, you blame her, you blame him. But your deepest pain is your remembrance of the ways that you contributed to the breakdown of that relationship. And God speaks to you even in grace now. And at its best, even if everything was wonderful between you and your spouse, the relationship between a man and a woman on earth, at its very best, it falls short of what it could have been if never man had fallen into sin. Sin has broken us this relationship up. And furthermore, the breakdown of our earthly unions, this is a picture of the breakdown that has taken place between us and God. In the book of Hosea, God compared Israel to an unfaithful wife. And I want to close by reading some verses from Hosea chapter 2. Israel had forsaken her true heavenly husband. She had chased after other lovers. In her case, the heathen nations and their idols. So God hedged her in with thorns. He walled her in. She couldn't find her way out. He made things difficult for her. And God said she will, she will chase after her lovers, but she shall not overtake them. Yes, she shall seek them, but not find them. And then she shall say, oh, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me than now. And this is what we read in verses 6 and 7. And she didn't realize, you see, that all of her blessings had come from God. She didn't realize that when the harvest came in, the wheat was brought into the barns, that came from God. And she didn't give thanks unto God. She went to idols and she went to false religion instead. She didn't realize that it was God who provided. But he didn't do this just to show her that he, he didn't withdraw, you see, from her, just to show that he's mad at her. You, you, you forsook sit me, so I'm mad at you, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go somewhere else. Forget you. That wasn't what God did. He didn't just, just as it were, reject her in spite. He withdrew from her to woo her back to himself. She allowed, you see, imperfect human relationships and troubles to come upon her, that she might realize that her primary relationship is to be with, with, with be a relationship with God. And so in Hosea chapter 2 and verse 14, we read these words, Therefore, behold, I will allure her, will bring her into the wilderness, and speak comfort to her. I will give her vineyards from there, and the valley of Achor is the door of hope. She shall sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. And it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that you will call me my husband, and no longer call me 
my master. Verse 19, I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, in loving kindness and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Dear ones, return to the Lord, and he will return to you. Return to him. He will receive you. He will forgive you. He will embrace you once again in his love. He will speak kindly to you. And in his embrace and in communion with him, in that is incomparable love, incomparable joy. And so when there's been a breakdown in your relationship with the one you love here upon earth, let it remind you of a breakdown in relationship with God and go back to him. Seek his favor. Seek his mercy. Seek his forgiveness. He is a forgiving God. He is a loving God. He is a good God. He lavished upon the creatures that he made everything that they could ever need. He still cares for you. And he is determined to to sometimes make it hard for you, not because he has no care for you, but because he cares so much. And he cares so much. And he wants you to come back to him. He wants you to become right with him once again. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and bless you that you have given to us this picture of diversity and unity supremely in yourself, but also this picture that you wanted this blessed diversity and unity to be something that is a blessing to every one of your creatures, to the man and to the woman that you made. And we thank you and bless you that in your word, We have instructions of how we might enjoy blessed, complementary union with one another as husbands and as wives. And especially we do pray that we would not make an idol, though, of our relationship, that we would realize that first and foremost is our relationship with you. Help us to be right with you. Forgive us of our sins, we do pray. Forgive us for those ways in which we have spoken harshly to one another or we have been bitter towards one another or we have cherished hard thoughts towards one another grant us your forgiveness and grace we do pray receive us especially when we have drawn away from you our heavenly spouse help us to return to you help us O lord to be right with you And enable us, O Lord, in your presence, in your company, in your embrace, to know that fullness of joy that you intend for us. For poor lost sinners in this room, for them too, we pray, bring them to yourself. Bring them to see that it will always be incompletion, always be frustration out in the world. Their only fulfillment will ultimately be found in you. Help them understand this, we pray. We pray in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.